I want to keep the pace that we have set of looking at one chapter a night at least, right? And then you get to chapters like Exodus chapter 3. And Exodus chapter 3 is loaded with different stuff to talk about. And so my fear is when you're doing this, once you go through the Bible and like we've started in Genesis and you start all the way going through this thing, you don't want to miss anything because the fear is you got to go back and do something else. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's cover this deal. So let's make an attempt to get through Exodus chapter three tonight. And if there's just a lot of stuff, then that's just the nature of it. Okay. But we want to try to continue this moving forward. So Exodus chapter three. Um, The first two chapters of Exodus have really set up what's coming now. The first two chapters have set up the fact that Israel is in Egypt. They have become great. And the Egyptians, especially Pharaoh the king, is not pleased or happy with what has happened. In fact, he's so concerned that he orders the mass murder of all of the babies and infants of the Israelites. Put them to death. Throw them in the Nile. And In light of this, now you have the Hebrew uh, women giving birth, not telling, not using uh, the um, midwives or anything of, of, of Egypt and giving birth. And then you have this incident where Moses was born and his mother hid him in the Nile in a basket to protect him from being killed by the Egyptians. And he was found by by Pharaoh's daughter who brought him into the family and even worked it out so Moses would be raised by his own mother up until the age that he could be weaned and then he's raised as the prince of Egypt. All of that has gone into this. But as Moses got older, we saw in chapter 2, he had to make this decision of who he belonged to. Having known he was a Hebrew but raised as a prince in Egypt, he had to make a decision when it came to it. And the the way he made the decision was probably not the best way to make a decision. Because we know whenever Moses witnessed the mistreatment of one of the Hebrews by an Egyptian, he took that Egyptian, he took matters into his own hands, he became judge, jury, and executioner, and killed that Egyptian. Only to next day to realize how dangerous this has become when even the Hebrews would not listen to him Because of the judgment he made. So Moses at the end of chapter 2 flees to Midian where there he is found with uh, Jethro. We'll understand Jethro had just moved from Arkansas to California. And he was there also in Midian before then. Um, And so Moses is found there and he begins to tend the flock of Jethro. Mary's Jethro's daughter. By the way, Moses tending the flock, he becomes a shepherd. We know the the imagery of the shepherd throughout the scriptures. David would be a shepherd and others. We also know that the Egyptians hated the shepherds, it told us. And so here's Moses as the prince of Egypt is not, again, identifying himself with the Egyptians, but he's identifying with his own people who were shepherds. And so Moses is there tending that flock. But then you have that end of chapter 2. Because all of that, chapter 1 and chapter 2, you have, you have Israel becoming great. They're in bondage and captivity. Pharaoh being uh, persecuting them, killing them. Moses rising up and having to flee for his life. But then you have the end of chapter 2, that little those, uh, few, three verses there. 
that during those many days the king of Egypt died and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and with Jacob and God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God heard, God saw, God knew. God recognizes. And then in chapter 3, God is going to act. God is going to act. Just by way of this, by, by the way, just to show you how, how great Scripture is, we learn how many years Moses was in Midian. Does anybody know where we learn how many years Moses was in Midian? This is a good trivia question for you guys. And Bible trivia. Bible trivia, by the way, if you play that game, it's too easy. You need to, you need to go up your game somewhere, make up your own. But we learn about this in Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7 is Stephen speaking and when he would be uh, stoned to death for his preaching of the gospel. Stephen's the one who says in verse 23, telling, retelling the story, he says when he was 40 years old, it, it came into his heart. He tells that about Moses. He's 40 years old whenever Moses... Uh, has the incident where he kills one of the Egyptians and he has to flee. And then it says in verse 30, now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai. So here Stephen tells us that Moses was 40 whenever he fled uh, Egypt and he's now 40 years later when chapter 3 happens. Does that make sense? And so that's how we know. So just to give you a timeline, and that verse 23 says during these many days the king of Egypt died so these many days God heard, God saw, God knew, and now in chapter 3, God is going to act. And probably in no place more so than this do we recognize again that while Moses takes center stage here, and we oftentimes think of it that way as Moses is the one that's the character in this, we really see in Exodus chapter 3 that God is the main character of Scripture. Scripture is about God. He's the main character. And so it's telling us a lot about God here in Genesis chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now this interesting, this place of Horeb, it's not the, the, won't be the last time that we run into Horeb, but Horeb has another name it goes by. The other name Horeb goes by, does anybody remember this? Another good trivia question for you. Sinai. Horeb is the same. Some of y'all got Bibles that just told you that, and y'all don't act like you just picked that up or anything. Horeb is another name for Sinai. So here's Moses at the west side of the wilderness. He comes to Horeb, the mountain of God. We see this. We'll see where Sinai will be a place he returns to and where God shows up at Sinai to give him the ten, right? It tells us in Deuteronomy that it was at Horeb that God gave Moses the two tablets that he placed into the ark. It'll tell us that. It tells us here that he's at Horeb, and when he's at Horeb, God shows up. And how does God show up? With fire, with a bush that's burning and not consumed. God will show up again in just a few chapters later, some, some 16 chapters later. He'll show up again at Horeb, which he'll call Sinai this time. He'll show up with fire again. And so here God is appearing, the mountain of God 
is, is, is there, Moses appear, is, is there, and as he's there with the flock, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Here we have another phrase, the angel of the Lord, just simply means messenger. Now, we've gone through this in Genesis. There's three times in Genesis that the angel of the Lord appears uh, to the people. You have uh, one, the first time is in Genesis 16. The angel of the Lord appears to Hagar. Remember, and Hagar is given a promise in Genesis 16 when the angel appears to her that her son, even though it was not the son of promise, that God would take care of her son. Hagar's response to the angel of the Lord is one of gratitude. You see that the angel of the Lord appears to uh, Abraham whenever he's on the mountain and the sacrifice was there and the ram appears in the thicket. The angel of the Lord comes and appears to him. Abraham's response is one of worship and prayer. The angel of the Lord appears to Jacob, and Jacob has to wrestle with him. Wrestle with him. Everybody got that? Jacob has to wrestle with the angel of the Lord, and he walks away, but with a limp on those thomas. When we went through those in Genesis, all of those appearances of the angel of the Lord are physical appearances of one who has come. And if you remember, I made the argument, and I still stand by the argument, that these physical appearances are pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus himself, the Son. The reason why is because we know, as the Scripture tells us, God the Father does not have a body like men. We, he's God is spirit. And so when we have a physical appearance of God in the text, it's what we call a Christophany. Right, a, an appearance of Christ, the second person of the Trinity has appeared because we know he didn't just begin as a baby in a little manger in Bethlehem. He always has been. And so when, when it says Jacob wrestled with God, we believe he wrestled with God and that physical wrestling was with the Christophany. What you have here is you have the angel of the Lord appearing again, but now you take, it takes a different look. What I would term this is not just a, not a Christophany, but a theophany, an appearance of God himself, because now God appears in the fire, if you will. He'll appear like this many times in scripture. He'll show up like this many times as fire appears in this bush. So God is appearing himself. And the reason why I say that's important for us is because in this passage, down a little bit farther, God appears... And he says to Moses, verse 5, first of all, God calls him by name. We'll talk about that in a minute. But he says to Moses, verse 5, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This is the same thing that's said in Joshua chapter 5, for example. Y'all remember in Joshua chapter 5, whenever Joshua's walking around and he's trying to figure out what to do with Jericho? He's got this ragtag bunch that just came out in the wilderness. None of them are trained. And by the way, he just circumcised every male, so none of them are fit to do anything for a while, right? And so you're coming out, and he's just done this, and he doesn't know what to do with Jericho, and he meets there outside the commander of the army of the Lord. Y'all remember that? He meets a soldier outside with weapon drawn, and what does that soldier tell him to do? Take off your sandals. Because where you're standing is holy ground. Never in scripture are we going to be told to worship or come into holiness unless it is God who is present. Does that make sense? Whenever Peter and John are uh, 
They're tried to worship. They ripped their clothes off. Don't worship us. Paul says the same thing. Don't worship us. The angels, whenever angels appear and someone seeks to bow down, don't worship us. The scriptures do not allow that to happen without correction. Only God is worthy of worship. And here we see an appearance of God himself having come to Moses. And that's exactly how he identifies himself. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire in the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning and it was not consumed. Y'all have seen this, by the way, on the movie Ten Commandments. Y'all see that's a perfect imagery of it. It's great, great cinematography. Not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight while the bush is not burning. Moses is, is, is interested in this. I need to go see what's happening over here. That's what he means by this. Let me go see what's going on. This is strange. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him. And so this angel of the Lord appears and then it says the Lord saw, same thing, same title, uh, same uh, title for Lord there. Then it says God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off for your feet, off of your feet for the place where you're standing on is on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, what this means, uh, the God of the God of your father, the God of Abraham, I'm the, I'm the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. What this means, remember, as he identifies himself with these three, the patriarchs of Israel, as he identifies himself with these three, he's identifying himself not just with them and their actions, he's identifying himself with them because he made promises to them. Remember, we talked about this in Genesis. To Abraham, he comes and he makes promises. God makes a promise to Abraham. We talk about it all the time, Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to give you a land, and I'm going to bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you great, give you a land, and bless you. And in, 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 in there's the promises. Then he comes and he appears to Isaac, and he reiterates the same promises to Isaac. He comes and he appears to Jacob, and he reiterates the same promises to Jacob. And what we find is, once we get past Jacob, he doesn't appear like that again. He doesn't appear like that again to Joseph or to, to Judah or to Reuben. He doesn't appear in the same way. Why? Because he's made the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And now the job of the people of God are to pass down the promises of God to the next generation. And so he comes to Moses 400 and some odd years later to reiterate, I'm the God of the promises. Remember, I made promises, and now, in light of that, the point is I'm coming to keep my promises. In fact, we'll see it. So he identifies himself with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob because he's identifying himself as the one who made promises to them and the one who's coming to you now. This is how he's identifying himself to him. In other words, What's happening here is Abraham is encountering the God who not only knows him, but the God who has promised him, the God who promised him. He's promised him as well as he's promised all of Israel of these things that he will do, and now he's coming to keep them. He's coming to keep those promises. I'm that God, the God who's done this. And Moses hid his face and was afraid to look at God. Again, we're learning a lot about God when we, 
what we see here about God is we see his holiness. The fact that no one can come into his presence unless you, he allows you to come into his presence. And even when you come into his presence, you have to come on his terms. Does everybody understand what I mean? We don't get to negotiate the deal whenever we come before God. Whenever God, we come into the presence of God, we don't get to say, hey, here's how I want to come, and then he tells us how he wants us to come, and then we write our conditions on a sheet of paper and slide them across and work the deal. Y'all know what I'm saying? Let's, 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 let's try to bargain here, God, and see how much I want to give of myself, see how much. That's not the way it works with God. We don't get to negotiate the contract on how we enter into the presence of God. God determines how that happens. And all we get to do is capitulate to what he's asked us to do or not enter into his presence, not come in. And the only way we can come in is if we come in with a clear understanding of his holiness. Here are my conditions. Take off your sandals when you come into my presence. It may seem some small thing here, but what God is saying is you don't get to come into this position, Moses, on your own terms. By the way, this continues. We don't get to negotiate the contract with God whenever we get saved, do we? God says, you must repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no other option here. You don't get to do it some other way. You don't get to figure out some other deal. You only get to come into my presence by doing it how I have said to do it. And God is doing this here. Moses, here's the deal. You come into my presence. And what does Moses do? In Moses' response, we see his holiness on display, God's holiness on display. And Moses' response is that when you meet God, he is humbling. It is humbling for us as well as inspiring. By the way, you, you see this a lot. You get this idea that, and, and, and we sometimes foster it in different ways, talking about Jesus as our homeboy, you know, or we just simply say, God, you're talking to the man upstairs or something like that. We use that and it kind of dumbs down who God is in that sense. And what I mean by that, what I mean by that is in the scriptures, whenever someone is face-to-face -face with the everlasting God, right? Whenever they come face-to-face, -face, even with the resurrected Jesus, their response is never giddiness or glee or it's never running up to him and high-fiving him. Y'all know what I'm talking about? The response is always they fall where? On their face, not to even look. Whenever we come face to face with a true and living God, it's not going to be some ecstatic expression of, of, of craziness that happens. It's going to be a response of humility before him falling on his face. In fact, this is what happens when Jesus goes on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? He takes Peter, James, and John with him, and he shows them what he will look like in his resurrected body. All of them fell down like a dead man. Or... John does it again. Even though John had seen him on the Mount of Transfiguration in the book of Revelation, when Jesus appears in front of him and John looks at him for a moment, what does John do? He falls down on his face as a dead man, it says. When confronted with the holiness and power of God, the only response we have is one of humility and falling on our face before him. And what happens is that God then, in those two cases, transfiguration in Matthew 17 and Revelation 1, in those two cases, Jesus comes up and taps them on the shoulder and says what? It's all right. It's okay. And in this case, we find the same thing for Moses. God tells Moses, even as he appears, take off your sandals, Moses falls down, and then the Lord says, 
I see you. It's all right. And so even when we come face to face with God, it's only going to lead us into humility. It's only going to lead us into this, this idea that we're not worthy to be in his presence and we need permission to be there. We don't come on our own terms. We don't get to negotiate the deal. We come in his presence on his terms and we have to have permission to even be in his presence. And you see that again here. His holiness is on display. We must remember his holiness. And, and if that's the case, then I think we need to remember this when we worship him. We need to remember this even now that our desire is to worship him in the presence of God so we don't come to worship in some great and glorious grandeur way in some sense that which we're better than or we deserve it. We come in humility before the Lord. On his terms, he's established it. He's put it there. And Moses falls on his face and he says in verse seven then, the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. This goes back to our passage at the end of chapter 2. I know their sufferings. I have seen, I have heard, and I know. I know their sufferings. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land of good and broad land and a land flowing milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression which, with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel. We see first Moses is encountered by God who knows, who sees, who hears. He's encountered by a God who is living and active, not one who's disconnected from his people, but one who knows and sees and hears. This is important because the gods of the world that have been coming up and the other gods of other nations, as we've talked about, are not ones who are connected. They're not one who know. In fact, you try to get their attention. If you're trying to worship them, you have to get their attention in worship. Y'all remember one of my favorite passages when Elijah is at Mount Carmel and he's got all the, the, the prophets of Baal up there, right? And so when, when the prophets of Baal come up and they put the fire, they put the, the wood out there and he's trying to get the fire to come down from heaven and ask it. And so what the prophets of Baal do is they start yelling real loud to get the attention of the gods Baal and trying to get their attention up there. Hey, y'all pay attention to us. And Elijah starts ragging them. Y'all remember that? Elijah starts in on them. Maybe they're out using the bathroom. I mean, I love that line. You think they're, they might be relieving themselves. Don't bother them right now. They'll be back in a minute. Elijah starts letting them have it. Who knows where they are? You know, they're at the outhouse or something. They may be sleeping. Maybe you need to yell louder. They're sleeping. And so Elijah's just letting them have it. And then Elijah says, pour the water on, do all this other stuff. And he says, Lord, now show yourself. And boom, it goes. Why is that? Because the Lord sees and knows and hears. But the gods of this world don't. And so the contrast begins right here as the Lord reveals himself. And let me say this. The Lord, first and foremost, if we are going to know him, the Lord must reveal himself to us. In other words, we're not going to figure him out until he tells us. Does that make sense? We, 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 don't have, we, we can see things. 
and know things the scripture says. We can look at creation and we can look at all of these other things and see the majesty and beauty of the creator, but we cannot know God until God reveals himself to us. He has to tell us. And so Moses is sitting here and he's got some sheep and he's heard about some promises and he's walking through some 40 years, been doing this, running from life, thinking his life is over. He's 80 years old. And my goodness, when you get to be 80, there's nothing left for you to do. I'm just joking on that. And everything's done. What am I going to do? And then out of the blue this day, He's out there in the middle of the wilderness and now he sees a bush and it's on fire and he's going, look at that thing. It's burning and not consumed and God speaks from it. Moses would have still been a shepherd out in the middle of this field unless God speaks. And what we thank God for is that he has spoken, right? He's not a God who's silent, but a God who sees hears, knows, and speaks. And God reveals himself to Moses. God has revealing himself to him. Moses would have never figured out what the next steps were. He would have never come to the conclusion walking through the wilderness. You know what I need to do? I need to go back to Egypt and tell Pharaoh, Pharaoh to let my people go. That's what I need to do. He never would have come to that. He never would have figured it out. He would only have just sit there and done what he was doing in the wilderness. But God shows up. He reveals himself. And when God reveals himself, Moses encounters this God who knows. He has to come to this conclusion that God is not only a God who knows, but he's a God who sins. He's a God who sins. Now, before you think I'm a heretic, I'm saying S-E-N-D-S, right? He's a God who sins. God is not one who sits back. He's the one who's going to employ his people. One of the glorious things about God is he doesn't just sit here and do it all, right? This is what's amazing. Is God sets the tone. He establishes who he is, and he sends his people. He, by his grace, lets his people be a part of his work. And so God not only Tells Moses, I see, I hear, I know, and now I'm speaking to you, and here's what I want you to do. He gives Moses a purpose and a task, and he is going to send him back. And why is he going to send him back? Because it's time for him to answer, to keep his promises. It's time, he says. I see, I hear, I know, and now I have come. I've come down. Here the picture is that the Lord is coming to the rescue of his people. And how is the Lord going to rescue his people? He's going to rescue his people by raising up a deliverer that will help deliver them from the bondage of slavery in Egypt. And that deliverer is Moses. I'm using you, Moses. I'm sending you, Moses. You need to answer my call. Because I'm sending you, Moses, to do the work of fulfilling the promises of God. There's a land that I gave, a promise. I gave a promise to Abraham. I reiterated the promise with Isaac. I gave it again to Jacob. And that promise still stands that I've got a place for you. In fact, if you remember, he took Abraham and said, see all of this. This will be yours. It was so much part of the promise that, that whenever Abraham left that land, bad things happened. 
Whenever Jacob left that land, bad things happened. So much by the end that Jacob said, I want to be buried there. That's where you've got to take my bones. Promise me you'll take my bones back there. That's my land. And so ultimately God said, this promise is coming and it's time to fulfill this promise. That land is yours and Moses, I want you to go and bring my people back. I've seen their oppression and I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel out of Egypt. God here is taking the initiative to make himself known and to reveal himself And as Moses meets him, he is humbled, he is inspired, he worships him in his holiness, and God then tells him to go. He sends him. My friends, let me just make this clear. I don't care who you are or what you have done. Whenever we come, as I said before, when we come to God, we don't come on our terms, we come on his terms. We don't need to negotiate the contract, right? And whenever we come to God and we find him because he finds us, just like he found Moses in the midst of the wilderness with this bush that's burning and not consumed, when he finds us and makes us his own, then he gives all of us a task. And in coming to God and accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and personal Savior, what we are also doing is recognizing that now we're getting orders to go. That comes with it. In fact, that's what he says in Matthew 28 for all of us. Go and make disciples of all nations, right? He's saying go. This is part of it. So we not only have a God who comes to us and saves us from our sin, and we can never do that on our own. We also have a God who calls us to go out and get and, and bring in others, have a task for us. And so here we see that Moses has to answer that call. And Moses answers that call in a lot of the same ways we answer that call oftentimes. He says, me? Are you sending me? Why in the world would you send me? He says, Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Now that may sound humble. Moses may sound like he's being humble, but what we will see here is that the very heart of this is not Moses being humble. Who am I? What gifts do I have? It's Moses not trusting God who is sending him. That's the problem. It may look like humility, but the question comes down to God when he asks Moses, you don't trust me? You don't, you don't believe that I, I can send you and I can accomplish these things through you? If I'm sending you, will I not equip you or give you? Look at what he says. He says, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children out of Israel? And he said, I love this. But, y'all, I like those buts in scripture. Who am I, God, that I should go do it? And God's response was, but I will be with you, Moses. I'll be with you. Who am I? God's ultimately saying, what matters here, Moses, is who I am. That's what ultimately matters. What matters is who is sending you, Moses. What matters is who is the one that's telling you to go. And if I tell you to go, what's he going to say? Who am I? But I will be with you. 
And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve the God on this mountain. Talking about Sinai again, you will see. You want to know I am with you, Moses? Just watch what happens. Go and see what happens. So the going becomes our trust in a God. Not only the God we have to answer who sins, but trusting in the God who makes promises. And I love what happens next. God, who am I? But I will be with you, Moses. And then Moses says to God, if, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? And God here, for the first time in the scriptures, gives Moses his name. And you understand the importance of that? He's saying, Moses, I'm sending you to go back and tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And Moses says, how can I do this? How are they going to listen to me? And he says, Moses, I'm going to give you my name. I'm going with you, and I'm giving you my name. I don't know about y'all, but that reminds me of another passage. That passage we've already talked about in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and earth, Jesus says, has been given to me. Now go in my name, right? How are we going to accomplish the task God has laid before us? Because we don't go in our own name. We don't go for our own benefit. We don't go building a resume for ourselves. We go with the name of the everlasting God, the one who's ruler and maker of all things. We go with the name of the God who rules and reigns over everything. What's in a name? We see this before. In Genesis, we have several names of God that are mentioned. You have El Elyon, God Most High in Genesis. El Roy, God who sees me. El Shaddai, God Almighty. Elohim, the everlasting God. You have all of these names of God that are mentioned. And then here, what happens in Exodus is God gives him this ultimate name that is above all other names. He says, I am who I am is sending you. This is the name Yahweh, the covenant name of God, right? That Yahweh is that word, I am who I am. That means God will be who we, he will be. He is not dependent on anybody else. He doesn't need any. He is the only independent being that we know. He doesn't need another person. He doesn't need another thing. He is independent in and of himself. He will be who he will be. Nobody determines who he is. Nobody determines his attitude. Y'all know how that works. You got people in your life that determine how your attitude is, right? Like kids, you know what I'm saying? If you're in a good mood, it's probably because the other people were good this morning. It's probably because that person didn't make you mad. If you're in a bad mood, it's because other people. If you could just get other people out of your life, you'd be okay. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But God is independent. He's not, his mood is not determined upon his people. If it would, he'd be in bad mood all the time. God is independent. His heart and his determination is not dependent on anybody or anything else. He does what he wants to do. Does everybody hear me when I say this? God does what he wants to do. Nobody can stop him from doing what he wants to do. In all things, God does what he wants to do. It should really kind of blow your mind because at the heart of it, God wants to save you from your sins. 
He wants you to be his child. He wants you to worship him and find true joy and satisfaction. He desires you and wants you because he sent his son to die for you. God does what he wants to do. And in this name he gives to Moses, that's what he's telling him. Moses, I'm not worried about Pharaoh. I will be who I will be. I'm not concerned about sending you to the greatest, highest ranking, most powerful king in all of the world at the time. I will be who I want to be. Not determined by anything else. Not only that, that means he's sovereign. That means he does not change. That means his knowledge does not come from from anything else or anybody else. He knows all, he has all. But it also means that not only that, I am who I am. God will be who he wants to be. Tells us that we know him from his name, but we also know him from his actions. We know him because we know his name here. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. But we also know him from his actions in the same way. It's the beauty of his name he gives. I will do what I want to do, he says. That's who I am. And so, in other words, we know him by that, but we also know him by what he does. And so, God is saying to Moses, check my track record. Look and see how I've been faithful. Look and see what I've done. God is not scared of putting his name on the line because he has always done what he wants to do and what he wants to do is always right. And so, he says, look at my actions, Moses, and now just watch me. Just watch me work. You go back to Egypt and you'll have a front row seat to all that I will do. And sure enough, he does, right? And so here he says, this is it. I'm sending you. I'm not sending you by yourself. I'm going. You're taking my name with you. You're taking my name with you. So as you go, go with my name. So to not go, To say, you know what, Moses saying, I'm not good enough, God. Why would you choose me? I may stutter a little bit. I may uh, not have the gifts and talents of leadership. I don't want this mess. I've been in the wilderness for 40 years just walking around with sheep. The last thing I want to do is go back to these people and deal with Pharaoh. I don't want to do this anymore. At the height of that, that may sound like a little bit of humility involved or a little bit saying, go get somebody else. I'm not good enough. But what God is saying is, no, really what you're saying, Moses, is you don't trust me. You don't trust me to do what I said I would do. So he's called us, he's called Moses to go. He's a God who sins. And in sending, we have to trust that he will keep his promises. And look what happens here. He does it again. The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be, this is what Moses is supposed to say to them, by the way. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. Go, gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you, what has been done to you in Egypt. I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, to the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice. 
And you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. And now, please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And listen to what he says. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. God said, here's your duty. Go and tell Pharaoh it's time to go. Please let us get out of here. We're going to worship our God in our place. So go there. And he says, but I know he's not going to let you go that easy. So he's telling, he's telling Moses, here's what's going to happen. And the only way you're going to get out of Egypt, Moses, is by what? A mighty hand. The only way you're going to get out is with force and power. And who has that? I will stretch out my hand, the Lord says. I'll stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold and jewelry and clothing. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Not only am I going to save you out of Egypt by my mighty hand, you're going to leave out of there with all the wealth and money you need. Because I'm going to put that on their hearts and their minds. So all you got to do is ask, and they'll give you their gold and silver. Just see what I do. Just see what I do. Ultimately, God is looking at Moses, and he's saying these things. He's a, he's a God who, who reveals himself. He's a God who let, lets Moses know that he knows. And so Moses encounters this God who knows, sees, hears, and acts. Moses has to answer this God who's going to send him to go. And he's got to trust as he sends him that he will send him with the promises to fulfill all that he said he would be and do. In this then, what do we learn about God? We learn of God's holiness, as we talked about. How we don't get to negotiate. He's the one who sets his terms. But in his holiness, we also see his compassion for his suffering people. God's heart is for his people. He says, I see them, I hear them, I know them, they're there. I know what you've been suffering, I know what you've been going through, and now I'm going to answer. God has a passion, a heart for his people, compassion for them. We see in this passage, as we learn about God, his, his, his uh, holiness, his compassion, we also see his faithfulness to keep his promises. God is drawing us back every single place he possibly can to remind us of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob. He's reminding us of the promises he made. And what he's doing here and his actions are not just some random act. They're not just something he's come up with. He's not just heard them and said, you know what, I'm going to go help them. That's some people, I'm going to go help them. So he just came up with this idea. No, this fits into the redemptive plan of God to redeem his people, not only from slavery, but from sin. It fits into his plan and his promises and he's going to keep them. What we can know is there's not a promise that has been made by God that he has not kept. In fact, Paul puts it like this way, that all the promises of God are yes and amen. Why? Because of Christ, right? 
Here, the promises are going to be kept by God going and delivering his people to bring them to a land. Ultimately, all the promises will be kept by God sending his son to die in a place. He's raising up a redeemer or a deliverer in Moses. But what Moses is doing is he's pointing us to a greater deliverer, a greater redeemer who will come later. Moses will deliver them from bondage and slavery in Egypt. Jesus will deliver his people from the bondage and slavery of sin. And so God shows his compassion by not leaving his people in their bondage, but by delivering them through a deliverer that is raised up. That's why we say that there's one who is greater than Moses who has come. Moses, this deliverer who's raised up here, is reluctant. Jesus, our deliverer who comes for us, comes out of obedience and a heart to rescue his people. God's promises come with a better future for his people. You've been in bondage and slavery, but I've got something better for you. I've got milk and honey, right? When I was a kid, I thought that was the coolest thing. I, to this day, I love milk. My mom made me drink it all the time. Allison, the kids, they don't like any of it, so I get the gallon all to myself, and I'm fine with that. Because that lets me still not have to drink the healthy stuff. Allison brought in skim milk one time. I thought I would die. Worst stuff in the world. So I still get to get the whole milk. Amen? It's good for your heart. All that kind of stuff. So when I was a kid, land flowing with milk and honey, I was sitting there going, heaven is awesome. Heaven is awesome. My granddad had bees. And so one of my great joy with my granddad was to go into his little shop that he had and he had cut off the honeycomb and he had this little machine that was like a bicycle, right? So you put the honeycombs in this big tub and you put them on the outer edge and you get on the bicycle and he'd be like, just ride. And you spin it and it would spin that tub around so fast that it'd sling all that honey out of the tub and it'd go down to, y'all know what I'm talking about? It'd go down to the bottom of the tub, and it would come out, and it would just be pouring out. You know what I'm saying? And I literally, before the night was over, every time would be laying on the floor sick as a dog. Because at some point, I'd have my whole mouth underneath that spout. Heaven is awesome. And what the Lord is saying here is saying, Moses, I'm sending you to get my people because I have something greater for them. I've got something better for them. I'm keeping my promises to take them to some place better, far more glorious. It's time. I love what's said. I think it's Hebrews. I'm just going to take a stab here. I think it's Hebrews. This can mess my whole thing up right here. Hebrews. Verse 14, chapter 13, verse 14. Speaking of this idea, I love this verse. The author of Hebrews says, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Here we recognize that everything is temporary. It's not lasting. We recognize that it's all fleeting that when we look at this life and this world, we're chasing after something and we never can get it. 
But the Lord says, for my people, I've got a place that they will not only get, they will dwell there. And if you remember what he says, don't miss this line. Moses, I will be with you. But Lord, I'm not good enough. I'm, this is crazy. It's not anything I'm geared for. I'm leading sheep. What can I do by going back and leading Israel out of it? I will be with you. But Lord, I'm not talented. I don't have the gift. What are you thinking about this? Last time I was over there, I got angry and killed a dude, and then nobody would listen to me. But I will be with you. And whatever excuse you try to make up to not follow after what God's called you to do, recognize what God says to Moses and know that that promise is for all of his children but I will be with you. Lord, I don't know if I can speak to this person. I know they're not saved. I know they're not following after you. Somebody's got to talk to them, but I don't think I can do it, Lord, but I will be with you. Lord, I know I need to go. I need to get on mission. I need to be somewhere. Lord, I'm retired. I'm old. I'm out of this. There's no way you could be sending me somewhere in some other country, someplace to do something. There's no way but I will be with you. And anytime we think that we're not equipped or we're not good enough to follow after God's call, don't forget what God said to Moses, but I will be with you. And my friends, that is enough to follow after him and go. God has revealed himself to us and when he reveals himself to us, we find a loving, caring, compassionate, all-powerful God who wants and desires to be with his people. And when he, we find him, he says, I got a plan for you, Josh Powell, but Lord, I can't pastor that church. Them people are all mean. I'm not talking about y'all. That was the other church. They're all mean. They don't listen, but I will be with you, Josh. And so it is for each and every one of us who are a child of the Lord but I will be with you. Write that on your mirror when you get up in the morning. Write that in your heart when you deal with people on the street. Write that in your very soul to know that he will never leave you. I will be with you, no matter what task he calls us to. And how has he testified to this? That he not only led the people of God out of Egypt to bondage of slavery, but he's led each and every one of us who believe in his son, Jesus Christ, out of the slavery and bondage of our sin. We don't just know him because he revealed himself. We know him because he revealed himself in what he has done for us. And he is with us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. It is true. God, help us to live in light of its truth today. Thank you, God, that you never leave us nor forsake us, that you are with us, that you have raised up a deliverer who is far greater than Moses, one who delivered us out of sin and death. God, one who has saved us from all of those things. So now, God, as we go every day, help us to know you are with us. And as you call us to go, Father, help us to know you are with us. And as we consider that there's something far greater waiting for us as your people. Help us to know that every step of the way, along the way to get there, you are with us. God, thank you for these things. It's in Jesus we pray. Amen.